Ezra chapter 3, and this can be found on page 474 of the Church Bibles. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in the towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shelalatil, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shelalatil, Joshua, son of Josedek, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and old, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The novel Anna Karenina opens with these famous lines. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Now, I understand the sentiment, but I'm not sure that it's entirely true. I actually think that happy families can be very different in the way they're happy. 
And uh, there's a way of, of, of family happiness that my husband's family actually has. It makes them very happy. And it took me a while to actually name it and understand it. Uh, but it is actually that they have a very strong tradition of oral storytelling. Uh, and I didn't really understand this. So when Daryl would tell me stories that I'd heard before, I'd say, I've heard that before. But he'd say, that's not the point of telling the story. Uh, you know, it's, it's just not something my family does in the same way. We're a very happy family. Uh, but uh, uh, we just don't tell the same stories again and again. And Daryl's family tells these stories with great relish. Uh, everyone participates and chimes in with the details. Uh, some of it may be a little bit transformed, I think, over time to legendary status. Uh, but uh, they enjoy telling them because they're picking up something that's unique about them as a family, their unique way of being. Stories, these stories are reminding them of their collective identity, who they are as a family. Now, that's storytelling, right? But if it was ritualised... Uh, we could actually make these things into annual events, right? A ritual is basically an action or a set of actions uh, that is done sort of over time at certain periods, sort of periodically, repeatedly. Uh, it often involves an amount of high drama. Uh, it can involve realia, like objects. Uh, so if these stories became rituals, we might have something like the festival of the breaking of the spoons. We might have an annual noisy night, which is also known as slumbering through the sirens. There could be an annual hunt for the hidden tulip bulb, which is hidden somewhere in the house and found only to be hidden again and looked for next year. Or there could be the cheeky rally drive across the school parking lot, an extra points if you manage to grab a school teacher's set of keys to do it. Now, these rituals would just be a formal way of doing the same thing, telling a story, capturing the essence of a particular way of being, reinforcing family identity, whether that's through a collective quality of collective mischief of the children or some shared family traits. And, you know, the funny thing is that as someone who is grafted into this family through marriage... These stories have in a way become my stories too. They're almost more familiar than my own story. Telling stories is a way of binding ourselves to. Now, in the passage we read today and across the Old Testament, there are two kinds of rituals. So we see that there's temple sacrifice rituals which allowed the Israelites to safely worship a holy God by offering sacrifices for sin. And then there are the annual festivals which helped Israel celebrate the story of her relationship with God, the way he had brought her into relationship and acted on her behalf. Now, some of these feasts celebrated God's general care, such as the harvest, and some of them were linked to moments in history, such as the Passover and the Feast of... To remember God's exceptional deeds, his miraculous deeds in saving them, such as the... So uh, the, the festival of the, of the tabernacles or the, ta or the booze was actually a time where the Israelites would go uh, and essentially camp out for seven days, build these huts. And it was a time to remember their time in the wilderness and the way God cared. So sort of remember their failure, but also God's mercy. Whether they were jo jo joyous or solemn occasions, they were marked by communal meals, singing, dancing, sacrifices and these were all given to them by God to bind Israel to her identity as a nation chosen by him. The story they were to live by 
was determined by the God they worshipped. And in Ezra, the first thing that happens in the process of rebuilding is that the sacrificial system is restored as soon as possible. In three, in, in verse 3, we see that before the temple is even built, they build the altar and start sacrificing. And they also make sure they celebrate all the feasts. It's the seventh month, so it's the most sacred, the most important month in the Jewish calendar with several ma major festivals in it. And they're very careful about getting it right. Because remember, they've just come back from a long exile. And the prophecies around them at the time emphasised the need to get the worship right, to reassure them of God's presence. And Ezra's emphasis is actually not in this chapter on the building process, but on the intensity of the celebration, which is more important than the construction. The song they sing in verse 11 is, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. It's not their piety or their preservation of the Torah and tradition that has been enduring, but it is God's goodness and love to them that is enduring. Now, it's interesting tonight in verse 12 uh, that the emotions evoked when the temple is finally built are very mixed. Uh, they, there's, there's crying, there's joy, uh, there's tears as old ones remember the former glory of the Solomon temple. And these are great days. The exiles have returned. Some of them have returned. But there's also this sense of a letdown. Things are really not quite as they should be. The temple's really not kind of it. Nevertheless, these generations, ones that have never experienced the exodus or the wilderness, they're telling each other again through these rituals. This is the family story. This is my story. This is your story. It's our story. The story we live by is defined by the God we worship. Now, if we fast forward some 400 years after the return from exile and the last words of the, spot of the prophets that are spoken in the Old Testament until we get to Jesus, and we, we encounter Jesus, who has grown up as a devout Jew, celebrating these festivals, growing up knowing his story, his family story as a Jew. He knew the trajectory of the history of the people as chosen by God, but unable to truly and faithfully worship him, then restored. But think for a minute about what happens, a key moment early in his life. After he's born, his family flees to Egypt to escape harm from the jealous king who hears that the king of the Jews has been born. And then the family is called by God to come back out of Egypt, back into the promised land. And Matthew's gospel shows us that this isn't some incidental fact, but a fulfillment of a prophecy. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And I wonder, when was it that Jesus noticed and realised that his life was to be a recapitulation of the history of Israel as the faithful son of God? I sometimes wonder whether it was in that early scene that we read about in Luke, where he was in the temple asking the Pharisees questions with such intelligence. Maybe he was piecing that storyline together and making sense of his calling. It's incredible to think about. Because, you see, as he goes through his life, the pattern continues. Every, every stage of Israel's history is repeated in the life and ministry of Jesus. And Matthew traces it out clearly that Jesus is the true Israel, and he gives us it in great detail. He explains that Jesus went down into Egypt and came up out of Egypt. He went through the waters of baptism and into the wilderness. 
He goes up to a mountain to give his sermon and he comes down from the mountain. He fulfills the kingship of David, the ministry of the prophets through warning uh, the Pharisees. And then finally, he's exiled by his death on the cross and restored through resurrection. The simple explanation is that Jesus came to do everything that Israel failed to do. He came to repeat her story as the perfect representative and true Israel, to be the true and greater Israel of God. He did her story again. Now, not many of us here, I don't think, are ethnically Jewish, uh, but uh, the book of Romans describes Israel as an olive tree and anyone, Jewish or Gentile, who trusts in Jesus is grafted into him as the new Israel, the true Israel, taking his life as the nourishing sap, uh, the life of the perfect worshipper and the God himself of our worship. And what happens to the rituals? The need for them just seems to fall away. Gone are the temple sacrifices. Jesus has provided the once and for all sacrifice for sins on the cross. Gone again is the need to observe the festivals and feasts, many of which retold the story of a failed Israel. And instead, Jesus gives us two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they're really important because they give us keys to this new story. They relate to key ideas, actually, of what was happening on the cross. Fleming Rutledge, uh, a great pastor and theologian from the States, in her landmark book on the crucifixion, says that the many images and concepts used by the New Testament to explain what was happening at that moment on the cross fall into two categories. One is the atonement, that is, the cross is taking away our guilt through an offering. And the other is deliverance. That is, the cross as victory over the powers of sin, death and the devil. Because the reality is, we've been captives, but we've also been complicit in our own captivity. We've been unable to worship God as we should, but we've been unwilling to worship him as we should. Baptism releases us symbolically from death as we are united to Christ in his death and set free to rise in newness of life. And the Lord's Supper symbolises Christ's own offering of himself as our perfect sacrifice. We take it as spiritual food to nourish our life in him and keep doing it to proclaim his death until he returns. So these are the two practices that Jesus gives us, two rituals that define our new story. And Jesus is saying, use these and live by the story I give you because I am the true God of your worship. Now, this story, this gospel story, is always an alternative to whatever story the dominant culture around is telling us. So what is the story today? The age we live in has been called the secular age, and we need to understand what we mean by this. Charles Taylor, great sociologist who's done a lot of uh, work in this area, talks about that the secular age is not necessarily an age of unbelief, but rather it is the way we believe that is different. It's not necessarily an age of unbelief, but the way we believe is different. And it's because all truth uh, positions are highly contested now. So you might be an atheist, you might be formally religious, you might be spiritual, but not religious. But the reality is we live in an age where those with faith are more tempted to doubt than ever. But those with doubt are also tempted to believe. 
It is true, however, that spiritual belief is getting harder than ever and what has been considered plausible in the past has changed. In the past, it was almost unthinkable to be an atheist. Now it feels almost like it's unthinkable, particularly in the West, to be a person that believes in something that is transcendent. And that's because the story that our dominant culture tells us, by and large, is that the world is a flattened universe. It is governed by entirely natural forces. And one of the major accomplishments of secularism is to give the possibility of a new world, that of exclusive humanism. Humans can now imagine that they have lives with meaning and significance without making any appeal to transcendence or eternity. In the past, what gave you purpose and meaning on identity was belonging to a religious community and a family. But now, that's just not the case. In the flattened universe that is disenchanted, there's no need to be bound by these things. Instead, we're free. We're free to find our own meaning. And that means that many people today are driven by the quest for authentic self-expression. The quest for authentic self-expression. We all must answer the call to seize my inmost possibility. I need to become what I'm destined to be. Be yourself. Find yourself. That's the existential quest. That's the God behind what the story that secularism offers. But it's a freedom that's a burden. Many people are doubting this story and are tempted to faith. And that's why, actually, there's a rise, there's been a rise in the so-called spiritual but not religious class. Many people just aren't buying it. They're not satisfied with the meaning a flat, godless universe offers. Others are driven by the quest to find meaning in a perfect human relationship, finding that perfect soulmate, despite my essential insignificance at the end of the day in a world that will end. And if you want to see a stunning example of this, uh, have a look online at a music video for Tim Minchin's love song, Apart Together. He's a well-known uh, Australian musician and um, very frank, frankly uh, atheist and, and is, is very public about that. This is a really hauntingly beautiful video, but it's ultimately devastating in its message because it has no hope. I'd like to just read out some of the words from that song. It basically, it's a storyline of decline, eventual decline, but staying with the one that you... I can handle the entropy if you promise to stay. I give you my heart, knowing things fall apart. Sorry, I'm just moved by this beautiful lie, but it's a lie. Praying you will decay with me, locked in each other's arms, eyes closed and faces calm. In the morning, a new life will dawn. So maybe don't set the alarm. Baby, I think this could last forever. Girl, let's fall apart together. It's one of the things that is devastating about art, because if you have beauty without the truth, it's very powerful. And this is the lie that many people are buying into. It's a lie, and it has no hope. So in these times of fragile of fragility where faith is fragile and all beliefs are contested. How is it that we can keep our faith alive, the story that Jesus has given for us to live by? Now, I don't know where you personally sit on the spectrum of having faith in Jesus. If you're a believer and this is your story, I encourage you to do two things. Firstly, bind yourself to the story. The story is Jesus, so learn Jesus. Take up the Gospels frequently and read them. Read them slow, read them fast, read them in one go like a novel. 
burrow down to a passage one at a time. Try to get the trajectory of the story in detail. Do it as part of the faith community. Of course, the private dimension to faith is really important, but the reality is, and this might rankle our Western individualism, that most of the scriptures address the body of believers as a whole. So keeping the story alive is something we do together. But don't stop at the Gospels. Read the whole counsel of Scripture to have the mind of Christ. We need to realise that if we want the mind of Christ, his was a mind that was shaped by the only Scriptures he knew, the Old Testament. And that's why in part today I have given a summary of the story uh, to try to give us a framework because I think it's very helpful and important for us to remember the whole story. Coming to hear preaching from books like the Old Testament opens, up, uh, opens us up to the story that Jesus knew and he recapitulated for us. Bind yourself to the story through the sacraments that Jesus gave, gave us. When there's a baptism, come along, support the family or the individual, but you'll also hear the meaning of baptism uh, shared again and you'll hear your baptismal vows said again when the creeds are read realize that when we read them these are hard one this is a hard one provision by the early church to put language around precious doctrines of who god is as trinity the incarnation of christ the significance of his life death and resurrection and it's retold in a short form um, but it gives us the hope as well the provi that's provided for our future Come to the Lord's Supper table. Take Holy Communion. It's the story again that we need in shorthand version. The feasts and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, when they're all rolled together, essentially sum up this story. God loves his people with a covenant love. The people have failed, but he has provided. And the Eucharist is a summary of that spiritual reality that's been fulfilled in Christ once and for all. Secondly, bind yourself to the Saviour. Cultivate your relationship of direct intimacy with Jesus. So when you read or pray at home or come to church, come expecting to be spoken to. And you've heard me do this uh, from the pulpit. I've encouraged you to look out for a moment in the service, either during the reading or the sermons or the songs or the prayers, where the living voice of God is speaking to you. And a couple of weeks ago, there was an invitation to come and read the scriptures using Lectio Divina, which is an ancient way of tuning into God's voice, praying with the scriptures. Karl Rayner, who was a famous Catholic theologian, said, Christians of the future will either be mystics or cease to be. Now, that language of mysticism and the fact that he's a Jesuit priest might put you off, uh, so perhaps let me reframe it because I think what he means to say that if we don't cultivate a face-to-face, -face, experienced, lived relationship with the Father that Jesus has made possible, made available to us on the cross, we risk having a faith that is just head knowledge only. And I can tell you that the practices such as Lectio have helped me cultivate my intimacy with God and they've helped me to be less susceptible to the prevailing winds in the dominant culture, even if they're that beautiful as the poem I just read out. Thirdly, and you'll know this old saying, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. And what is meant by that is that you need to keep your eye on your enemy and never forget that he's always out to get you. So what's the enemy? Well, we know that it's the devil, but each one of us has a particular story, a false narrative 
with a God attached that we are really susceptible to. It's a story that we are tempted to believe about what the good life entails and the allegiance that is demanded of you to get it. I know mine. Do you know yours? The devil and all his false gods have been overpowered on the cross, but they still limp about like cut snakes, causing trouble where they can. And if your faith has waned lately, this is a really good time for you to check in with yourself and ask the honest question, what is the story I'm actually living by? Not the one I profess, but the one that actually drives me. Have I bought in to some other version of the good life? What is actually ultimate for me? Now, maybe you're here and you're not sure of your faith. Uh, You're not a Christian yet. You're exploring. Let me encourage you to consider Jesus as a credible option to base your life on. Keep engaging. Keep journeying with us or with other Christians you know. This is an open community and you don't have to believe first in order to belong. And one of the best ways to explore is to read a gospel. That is one of the four historical accounts of the life of Jesus that's found. Now, Mark is often recommended because it's short and punchy uh, and to the point. Uh, John has a lot to offer, particularly in this post-Christian, post-modern climate, because it's known as the spiritual gospel. In John, Jesus' message is that he is the one that brings fullness of life. All of us have a story we live by. Every one of them comes with a God, something that demands our highest allegiance. There are many wonderful things in life apart from God. They make wonderful servants but terrible masters. In the end, if we make them our gods, they will let us down. The stories they tell us will outlive us in the end, mocking the choice that we have made. The Israelites had the one true God, but they couldn't live the life of the perfect worshipper. Only one person could do that, Jesus. And he offers his own life story to become your story and himself as the God that will never crush you if you worship him but instead liberates you and gives you the meaning and purpose that you are longing for. So what's your story?